From 1941 to 1965, Paul Engel, an American poet and novelist who Kurt Vonnegut once said talked like a man with a paper asshole, oversaw the rapid growth and rise to prominence of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. The IWW was and is a graduate-level creative writing program at the University of Iowa. Among its past graduates and faculty are 40 Pulitzer Prize winners, innumerable winners of the National Book Award, eight U.S. Poet Laureates, and at least one recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Its former staff roles read like a list of famed post-war American authors, including Vonnegut, Robert Lowell, Philip Roth, John Cheever, and Wallace Stenger. The Iowa Writers' Workshop practically invented the modern academic discipline of creative writing, and many of the MFA programs that sprung up in its wake were founded by IWW graduates. Unbeknownst to many of these literary luminaries, the Iowa Writers' Workshop was funded in large part through a labyrinth of CIA front organizations, and the agency was deploying their writing as the newest weapon in its Cold War arsenal. This is part two of two in my little series on the CIA's weaponization and manipulation of culture. In this episode, I'll be covering literature and print publications. If you'd like to learn about the politics of painting during the Cold War, check out episode 119. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 120. Art and Artifice, part two. The Pen and the Sword. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. So, there are two important areas I'd like to cover in this episode. Yes, I'm going to talk about the Iowa Writers' Workshop and how it impacted the development of American literature, but also there's a more macro aspect to this story. Obviously, the CIA didn't constrain its literary dirty tricks to a single MFA program in Iowa City. You may recall from last episode talk about the Congress of Cultural Freedom and Wisner's Wurlitzer, a vast international network of publications secretly controlled by the CIA. Unsurprisingly, these usual suspects will make another appearance here, as the CIA used its sprawling print influence to silence and censor troublesome authors, as well as mislead writers into letting their works become tools of the American empire. To give you a sense of the scale of these propaganda operations, I'd like to start at the international level first, and then circle back to the IWW after that. So, what forms did the CIA's secret manipulations of literature take at the international level? To talk about that, we need to know about the structure of the relationships between these print publications and the CIA. In general, there are two types of relationships, one where the editors were aware of CIA affiliation, and ones where they weren't. Magazines like the German Der Monat, meaning The Month, first published in 1948, were founded and controlled by either CIA agents or intellectuals who had been recruited by the agency. After Der Monat came the British Encounter in 1951, followed by the French Proves in 1953. These magazines, and untold others, grew with CIA money that had been laundered through an intermediary, in most cases, a rich guy would set up a phony fund or foundation with a relatively small initial deposit, after which CIA funds could flow through unabated. The most notable of these rich guys is Julius Fleischmann Jr., scion of the Fleischmann Yeast Fortune, who Frances Stoner Saunders calls in her book The Cultural Cold War the CIA's most significant single frontman. 
Fleischmann's Fairfield Foundation was one of the many avenues the CIA had to distribute funds to its empire. Another, of course, is the Congress of Cultural Freedom. The Congress was the funding avenue of choice when the CIA wanted to keep its editors in the dark about their involvement. Of course, throughout the Congress's existence, it was dogged by rumors of agency affiliation. But, no matter the chosen front, the CIA used this power to enforce an editorial line across its print holdings. In these new magazines, which were largely about art, culture, and literature, this meant that anything critical of the United States would not be published. Stories and novels that showed American life in a less than venerable light would not be accepted for submission or reviewed, their authors not interviewed for articles syndicated around the world. One particular subject that was forbidden from print was any hint of America's racism problem, or, indeed, any hint of race. In the first 47 years of publication of Encounter, a literary review magazine, they published exactly three black authors. Writers or reporters who didn't toe the line were subject to a blacklist, leaving them unemployable or unable to publish. The CIA also used their power to sabotage the careers of leftist authors, including successfully denying Chilean poet Pablo Neruda the Nobel Prize in 1964. Other authors, such as James Baldwin and Ernest Hemingway, were perpetually spied on. In Hemingway's case, the constant surveillance, combined with depression over the American government's forcing him to leave Cuba, eventually caused him to commit suicide in 1961. Over time, magazines like the Paris Review, first launched in 1953 and co-founded by a CIA agent, became powerful tastemakers in the world of Western culture. In 1957, when the Soviet Union prevented the anti-revolutionary novel Dr. Zhivago from being published, it was magazines like the Paris Review that ensured the book was a massive critical success. Their interview of the author, Boris Pasternak, took the Western cultural world by storm. The CIA did its part by stealing a transcript from the Italian rights holder and illegally printing tens of thousands of copies for distribution at the 1958 Brussels World's Fair in hopes that visiting Soviet citizens would smuggle them back. Making sure not to let a good crisis go to waste, the CIA proceeded to fund the translation of Dr. Zhivago into a number of different languages, which the agency then bought in bulk to send it to the top of the charts. Eventually, in 1966 and 1967, stories leaked to magazines like Ramparts exposed this vast secret media empire and revealed to the artists involved that they had been used. In response to the Ramparts articles, the CIA had the FBI designate the magazine as a subversive organization, and the CIA, which I may add is not chartered to operate domestically, placed every one of its 55 staff members under constant surveillance. Many of those who had been made tools of the agency, like Colombian novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who had just allowed preview chapters of his masterpiece 100 Years of Solitude to be published in the CCF-funded Mundo Nuevo, denounced the agency and regretted their unwitting association. Now that we've seen how the CIA used print to manipulate Western art and literary culture on the international level, why don't we take a look at how they did it on the home front? The Iowa Writers' Workshop was founded in 1936 by Wilbur Schramm, thought to be the father of the modern field of communications, who led the program for five years, departing in 1941 and being succeeded by Paul Engel. A radical in his youth, after the establishment of the House Un-American Activities Committee, he hastily switched sides and became an increasingly ardent anti-communist. 
It was through his efforts that the workshop gained so much funding and prestige. Engel had a very similar pitch to the CIA. American novels would be a weapon in the fight against communism. It was with this argument that he successfully solicited very large donations from conservative American businessmen. Executives from Quaker Oats, U.S. Steel, and Maytag gave generously. The workshop was also supported by the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, both of which have strong ties to the CIA. The agency itself wouldn't become directly, directly involved until 1967, when the workshop was the recipient of funding from our good friends at the Fairfield Foundation. Soon after, it would receive donations from the Asia Foundation, another CIA front, and the Department of State. But this begs the question, what about this new American literature in particular would fight communism? Well, it was because the Iowa Writers' Workshop taught its authors not to engage with ideas and philosophy. To use a term coined by the workshop and still in use today, they were instructed to show, not tell. To quote from Eric Bennett's Workshops of Empire, students were taught that good writing consisted of sensations, not doctrines, experiences, not dogmas, memories, not philosophies. It was a calculated attempt to permanently snuff out the political and social commentary in the writing of the 1930s, which I talked about in last episode. Engel's approach to literature saw the elevation of the individual and the elimination of any systemic critique. If you have ideas, write an essay. This quiet ideological bent was reproduced in each of the thousands of creative writing programs that modeled themselves on the IWW. Show, don't tell has become an accepted truth in American creative writing. If you've taken a class, then you too have doubtlessly been the beneficiary of such wisdom. I think it's fair to say that Engel and the CIA successfully accomplished their goal of weaponizing literature to prevent political consciousness. And although the tenants of the IWW certainly do not have as much sway in 2021 as they did in 1951, the workshop created a standard that is still very much reflected in modern American literature and the ways in which we teach it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and this small series. If you did, I'd really appreciate it if you subscribed or shared the show with a friend. Thanks again for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.